Hey, good morning. It's Gary, your host of Convicted Conversations. It's a wet Monday morning. Um, happy Labor Day. If you guys haven't um, gassed up your cars or gotten any batteries or doing whatever you need to do to prepare for this hurricane, do so now. You still have time if you're down here um, in Fort Lauderdale or Miami. We're not going to get a direct hit, but it's going up North Florida, like towards Jacksonville, Palm Beach, um, Tallahassee area. So if you guys are listening to my podcast and you're not watching the news, um, it's coming up that way. So make sure you guys are prepared. Gas up your cars. Like I said, get batteries. Um, if you need to get cash out of the ATM, do so now um, if the weather allows you to. Um, but make sure you guys are prepared because this is a really bad storm. It's a Category 5 and it's still barreling towards um, Florida. And it, I mean, it's a huge storm and it's just sitting over the water, collecting more water. So this is going to be really bad. Bahamas is really bad right now. If you guys haven't been watching the news, they've got um, hit pretty hard in Marsh Harbor and uh, Freeport. So if you have any family there, if you're able to contact them, um, try to reach out. But they got battered really hard. Um, Bahamas is devastated right now. I mean, it looked like a war zone if you've been watching the news. Um, so make sure you reach out to your family if you can. Um, if not, just pray for them. But Bahamas did get hit pretty hard. You guys be safe. And again, happy Labor Day. Bridge eight, hotel water. This the real face. Fuck the bitch. Broke our heart. She think we still dating. Three choppers sitting in the car. We play it real safe. Fifty million dollars in cash. That's a cold case. Spent so much cash in Chanel. They want a CID. Bust down on the Uchi while I'm so sincere. Got a hundred shooters sitting outside. Got a hundred shooters sitting outside. Yeah, uh, fifty mil. Bagged in my safe. That's a gray yard. Fuck the bitch. Seen her with a man. I had to play it off. Dream chaser. We just like a label. We got air now. Famous off. Pussy, I'm a slam raw, yeah. You are now welcome to the players' ball. Whole lot of money, lot of rich shit, yeah. Honey shooters, I can get your quick hit. Get my dick stuck in a limbo, wise dick shit, big shit. Baby, it's the big fish. All these VVS's in my necklace, in my wrist lit. I can wipe my ass with these hundreds on the shit, bitch. Shut up in a DM like James Harden in with Swish Swish. I'm sipping. Pure no tap water. This the real face, fuck the bitch. Broke our hearts, she think we still dang. Three choppers sitting in the car. Home of the President of the United States, and also residents of the true king of cocaine, Rafael Edmund. To truly understand how Rafael Edmund became the king of cocaine, to understand the legendary story of his rise and fall, being the largest distributor of pure Colombian cocaine during the mid and late 80s, and making $300 million a year at the age of 22, will have to take you back a few generations in his family. Before Rafa was born, members of his family ran the largest illegal numbers operation, stretching back to the early 50s and 60s in Washington, D.C. When Rafa was born on November 26, 1964, his family had expanded their criminal enterprise into the drug game. Rafa was introduced to the game of dealing drugs at the early age of 10. This is the story of his 14-year rise of power, money, murder, 
and the four-year investigation that led to the fall of his enterprise, brought down by the ultimate betrayal of two of his closest friends. Walk down any street in Northeast Washington, and people will tell you here he was the reigning king. To adults who knew how he got his money, he was also a man to be feared, 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 feared. Prosecutors claim that the alleged cocaine organization turned those, those streets into the city's biggest open-air drug market. That had been hauling in a million dollars a week. They booked brothers, sisters, cousins, aunts, and the man who controlled them all, 24-year-old Rafael Edmond. Rafael Edmond III. Cocaine kingpin Rafael Edmond. Rafael Edmond III is charged with heading the city's largest cocaine ring. When he, when he made that statement to me, he was letting me know that the price went down 3000 It went from 19th Street to 16th Street. So automatically knew what he was talking about. Edmund is accused of running the biggest drug ring in the city's history. You know I'm up to something. Just, just as common sense would tell you. If you got good common sense, they would tell you that I'm up to no good. Edmund is accused of running the biggest drug ring in D.C. history. Attacks of a conversation between the FBI. While attending Hamilton Junior High School in 1975, Rafael Edmund met Royal Brooks. Although Royal Brooks wasn't raised in the same surroundings as Rafael, they established a very close friendship with each other. For Rafael, Royal was an escape from his chaotic life at home. Although Rafael looked up to Royal for the accomplishments in sports and with school, Royal looked up to Rafael for his street smarts and hustling ways. Yet as a youth, the family business caught up with Rafael. When Rafael was 10, he worked with a few members of his family, dealing in illegal prescription diet drugs. By the age of 13, Rafael began making money for himself by selling marijuana and PCP, which he did off and on leading up to his graduation from Dunbar High School in 1982. Facing life-changing decisions after graduation and seeing his friend Royal Brooks move forward in life, Rafael was inspired to also continue his education and attended the University of the District of Columbia. Very quickly, however, Rafael became bored with the slow pace of the world of academics and returned back to the fast pace of the streets. Despite the fact that after high school the two went their separate ways, they maintained a strong friendship. Royal Brooks moved to North Carolina to continue his education by attending North Carolina A&T University, majoring in business. They were close friends even before their days together here at Dunbar High School in Northwest Washington. Today, key government witness Royal Brooks said at first he tried to protect Rafael Edmond through his own deliberate cover-up from getting indicted for leading a cocaine conspiracy. Under pointed questioning from Edmonds attorney William Murphy, Brooks admitted he lied, 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 lied. 
when I first met Royal Brooks, you know what I'm saying, Ray introduced me as his good friend. You know what I'm saying? Say was a school buddy, you know, just real close to high school or something. They were saying he was real smart in school. I remember that, you know what I'm saying? Real athletic, but we I ain't had no dislike for him, but he really, you know, we we didn't really bond like that. I just respect him as Ray, you know, one of Ray's good friends. Shortly after graduation from Dunbar, Rayful turned to selling cocaine full-time, immersing himself in the drug game. His first location was set up just a few blocks from his grandmother's house on 5th and L and 6th and L Street Northeast. With business growing, he was able to recruit family members and friends to start a small-scale operation. Although some members of the family weren't engaged in the drug activities during the early 80s, they eventually started helping Rayful with his fast-growing business, with cocaine being the drug of choice during the early 80s, and with Hanover Place being the largest open-air drug market in Washington, D.C. at the time, the profits of the Edmonds operation appeared minimal. At today's session, an old family friend of Rachel Edmonds' sister testified that she stored large quantities of cocaine, as much as 20 kilos at a time, at her home on Capitol Hill Northeast. And who was testifying in return for having drug charges against her dropped, said she had seen Edmund in the neighborhood several times, getting in and out of a long stretch limousine. But she added she had only talked to him in passing. Claims members of the alleged Edmund drug ring provided the drugs. She said Edmund would call her as often as every other day, telling her to bring portions of the cocaine to the alleged headquarters of the operation at 407 M Street in Northeast. On October 29, 1985, the Hanover Place operation was shut down after the arrest of its drug kingpin, leaving the market in desperate need for new suppliers to meet the existing demand. With Rayful quickly realizing the great opportunity, he moved his operation a few blocks over on the Morton's and Orleans Place Northeast. During the early stages of his business, Rayful used local motels to have a place to bag cocaine for retail on the strip of Morton's and Orleans Place. Products were dropped off on a daily basis to lieutenants that handed the products out to the runners. In the early 80s, in the area of uh, Morton and Orleans, it was like a drive-in store, basically. You drove up, got what you wanted. Uh, it was, both those were one-way streets, very narrow. You can go in there day or night and just walk up and see those guys selling half ounces, whole ounces, 50s, 20s. A lot of traffic going in and out constantly. Uh, it was just difficult to police until they put a lot of efforts into it. Officer Marcello Muzzotti used blown up photographs of the area to describe the alleged drug activity. He said an alley between Morton and Orleans was littered with trash, sofas, refrigerators, motorcycles, and foot-high trip wires to slow down cops chasing after drug sellers. He said trash was removed from the alley twice daily, but that sometimes within the hour, more trash would take its place. Mazzotti used a neighborhood resident's apartment as an observation post, and one time he said he saw 40 to 50 drug transactions within an hour and a half. He said the cocaine was wrapped in newspaper in bundles about the size of golf balls. He said the suppliers would come out of 656 Orleans Place and toss four or five bundles of cocaine to the sellers. He said it was so busy that sometimes buyers had to wait for more bundles to come out. He identified the defendant as one of those distributing the cocaine and collecting the money from the sellers. 
He also identified defendant, a brother of Rifle Edmund, as someone who drove through the neighborhood warning sellers that police were in the area. Officer Mizadi also testified that he had seen another one of the defendants in the neighborhood. Mizadi said he would yell when police would enter the neighborhood. Mizadi said he would use the term Olare, pig Latin for rollers, which is a street term for police. During the mid-80s, Rafer was paying his runners in the range of $1,000 to $4,000 a week. So much so that everyone in the area wanted to be a part of his operation. How much would he pay a 14-year-old to do a little street work for him? It would vary. I mean, uh, some of these kids would make $500 a night, sometimes they'd make $5,000 a week. 20-year-old said he bought large quantities of cocaine from Rafel Edmund to sell, paying $10,000 per half a kilo. The witness said he made so much money selling drugs, he wore a medallion with a seven and a half carat diamond, and he owned seven cars by age 17. He was arrested by an undercover DEA agent and is now in federal prison serving a 12-year sentence for two counts of cocaine distribution. And my job was, as an undercover officer, to infiltrate the Rafael Edmund organization. Um, with certain instances, I would go to the house, purchase drugs, um, get, to high, get to the highest point in his organization as I could. Um, and that means starting low. I started buying drugs outside until I got close to whoever was in the house and I could go in the house and, and buy drugs and talk to different, you know, different runners and different um, mules in his organization. In the mid-1980s, one of the many places where hustlers commonly ate was the Florida Avenue Grill. It was in 1986 when Rafael Edmund met a middle-aged white female by the name of Alta Ray Zanville outside of the Florida Avenue Grill. Zanville was selling jewelry on consignment on behalf of a downtown jewelry distributor. She attempted to sell Rafael a ring for $100. After purchasing the ring, Rafael gave the ring back to Zanville along with his beeper number, telling Zanville to give him a call. It's Alta Ray Zanville, whom the defense is trying to attack and whom the prosecution is trying to protect. She came to Washington almost 30 years ago as a high school graduate and soon thereafter moved in with Al Zanville, who she married in 1970. She eventually moved into a crowd that she admitted in court yesterday could be described as hustlers, pimps, thieves, dope dealers, and narcotics addicts. The first time when Rafael met Ms. Zanville, I was with him when he met him. He was at Florida Avenue Grill that day. And uh, she was driving a red convertible Benz. I think she was selling jewelry back then. And she walked him over to the trunk of his car, pulled out a little plate of jewelry. That's when I walked over and looked at the jewelry. I think it was some rings and some watches. And from that fourth one, I just thought, I always thought she was a jewelry seller. I'm not quite sure why Rafael took uh, such a liking to Ray Zanville, but uh, after he met her, he did, and he relied on her very heavily for uh, advice and help in selecting furniture, clothing, cars. My distinct time being around the most time, in like 87, when the late Little Haggard fight, we went to that fight, I got a chance to interact with her a little bit, talk to her. You know, so I always was kind of worried of her. Rafael and Zanville quickly became close friends. Close enough that Zanville agreed to rent several apartments in her name to be used by Rafael. On several occasions, Rafael asked Zanville to hold large quantities of money. As the relationship progressed, Zanville became a local carrier for Rafael, transporting money between several locations. At some point, she began to hold money for him, and she began to become closely involved with his drug distribution activities. 
Next on the stand was Royal Brooks, who said he's known Rafael Edmonds since they were together in the seventh grade. He said that Edmonds supplied him with small amounts of cocaine that he sold on the streets of Greensboro while he was a student at North Carolina A&T University. He testified that after graduation at Edmonds' request, he started holding kilogram quantities of cocaine for Edmonds. With Royal Brooks having received his bachelor's degree in business administration, he returned back to Washington, D.C. Even though he had his college degree, Royal quickly realized that he could make more money with Rafael than in corporate America. So after agreeing to allow Rafael to use his apartment to store money and cocaine, Royal eventually became a carrier for Rafael. Nineteen eighty-seven was the year on top. Rafael stepped off a plane in Las Vegas, Nevada, and into a whole new ball game. On April 6, 1987, Rafael Edmond and his top lieutenant sat front row at the Sugar Ray Leonard Marvin Hagler fight. After the fight, Rafael and company returned to the Hilton Hotel where the whispers were performing. There in the lobby of the Hilton, Rafael met a guy named Melvin Butler, a Los Angeles-based gang member with major contacts to Colombian drug cartels. A jewelry appraiser from Los Angeles was asked about the value of a gold and diamond chain and medallion worn by Melvin Butler. Prosecutors say Butler was Edmonds West Coast cocaine connection. The appraiser said the medallion, which includes a 140 round cut diamonds, is worth about $68,000. After he met Melvin Butler, I'm saying, like I said in that fight of Vegas, that was like hitting the Powerball. After the initial meeting, Rafael and Butler agreed to do business together. To determine how to best transport cocaine from L.A. to D.C., they decided to do a test run. Rafael sent Royal Brooks to L.A. with a small package of money for cocaine. On the return trip, Melvin Butler gave Royal 16 kilos of coke, which Royal transported back to D.C. by hiding it between the clothes in his suitcase. Rafael's first purchase from Melvin Butler was for the amount of $2 million in exchange for 200 keys of coke. To transport the cocaine from Los Angeles to D.C., Royal Brooks drove a 20-foot camper across the country. I bought um, cocaine from which is, I think is his half-brother, um, on, on three or four different occasions, and even had a talk with him about, you know, they had a big shipment coming in out from Kentucky on a U-Haul truck. And that's a lot of drugs to be bringing into to, to the city. I mean, that's just that's some of the extent of how they were operating. On the rise during the mid-80s, cocaine was widely available throughout the hood of every ghetto and suburb of every town. Although Zanville was just a bagger in the Edmonds organization, she eventually went out and started a small-scale cocaine operation. After requesting to be paid in the form of cocaine for her services instead of cash, Zanville received an ounce of cocaine for every key that was broken down into 50 and $100 bags for retail on the strip of Morton and Orleans Place. With frequent trips to LA, Royal was able to establish a close relationship with Melvin Butler. Although unknown to Rayful, Royal obtained surplus coke for Melvin, which he sold to his personal contacts in North Carolina. With the drug game changing, crack cocaine grew in popularity and decreased in price, making it more readily available for both new dealers willing to enter the drug game and addicts eager to pay less for a higher high. Well, I think the epidemic of crack brought out the violence 
uh-huh. onto the street when the crack epidemic happened. I think Rafer lost total control then. Crack actually began the spiral of, of violence in the city. The new epidemic, however, was not bad for Rafer's business. Initially, Rafer was only able to move 200 keys a week. But by 1987, with the crack epidemic on the rise, he was able to move up to 2,000 kilos a week with gross profits up to $70 million. On a daily basis, Rafel had his carriers traveling to L.A. by plane with millions of dollars packed in suitcases and carriers returning to D.C. in tractor trailers and trucks full of thousands of kilos of cocaine. estimated that Rafer was bringing in about $30 million a month. And that's a lot of money to try to hide and launder and keep and, you know, it's just a lot of money. You can't you can't put it in the bank. You can't buy enough things. You know, you can't buy, you can only buy so many cars. Rafael Edmund III, the biggest drug dealer in the history of Washington, D.C., saw some $300 million a year worth of cocaine and crack. The prosecutor said Edmund and six members of his family, who are among the 11 defendants, drove luxury cars, went on $50,000 shopping sprees in Washington's pricey Georgetown district, and flew to Las Vegas to watch a prize fight. Shopping sprees that uh, were extraordinary to go in and spend $50,000, $70,000 to take in a bevy of young people and say, essentially, uh, pick out what you want, I'll pick up the tab. U.S. attorney says that you had huge amounts of cash that you were moving around, that you had Porsches, Jaguars, gold-plated hubcaps. This is your watch. Yeah, it used to be my watch. It used to be your watch. Yeah, the government now has this watch. Yeah, the government owns it now. How much did this watch cost? Oh, uh, close to 100000 Was this typical of what you would buy when typical you Typical were... things that I would buy when I was home. Well, you were fancy. Yeah, I was, I was a little jazzy, yeah, I like, I like, you know, try to have a lot of class. Did you wear a lot of diamonds on your No, fingers? I wasn't, I wasn't, I just had one carat, I just had a 10 carat diamond ring. Oh. A 3 carat for my ear and just a, a diamond chain that matched the watch. Very simple. Yeah, just, you know, simple, but stand out. As far as money, I mean, he wasn't no limit to him, I'm saying, for real, I think Puff must have seen the blueprint on him, because... He was doing that shit in the 80s, you know what I'm saying? Like, for example, we might go out of town. It's like in Vegas for the fight in 80, 87. We might be in five rooms. We might book out 15 rooms, you know what I'm saying? Just so people won't even be complaining about noise beside us, you know what I'm saying? I remember one time at the, the Bullets game. They was the Bullets back then. He had a girl with him that was dating one of the guys that played the game. I don't remember the exact play. I want to say Moses, but don't hold me to it, you know what I'm saying? But... I remember I was saying, man, them niggas get that nigga getting money. He getting like two million. You, you don't want to see him. He was like, yeah, but he getting that across, spread out over a year. What tackles get cut? Check it out. You know what I'm saying? He said, I might get that in a couple of months or more. You know what I'm saying? Ain't no tackles. He was just like, man, these niggas ain't fuck with me. He was like, an average nigga in the league. They can't go home and just touch four or five million in cash. You know what I'm saying? They got to go right to the banks and talk to their investors and, you know, twist their money. So he was just, you know, this all we be always at it with little shit like that, you know what I'm saying? Man, living with Ray was, it was, it was unbelievable, man. For two years, I'm talking about from my socks to my drawers, I never wore the same thing twice, ever. I mean, after we wore it, we put in the cleaners and gave it away, or we used to go in stores, buy everything by the bulk, shoes, 
sweats and they used to close the store down for us and everything. Well, we went shopping. I mean, it was, it's like, I mean, I remember one time, I used to, he, he gave me like $10,000 just to hold. And I, I guess he probably had like 10, like 10 or 20. That was just, that was just a hold so we can, like, matter of fact, we was going to a con. I mean, we spent like about, shit, about that day up Georgia, I spent about 15000 now. Had bags galore. Then, then you might run into people that just know him and, 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 and come up while we in the store. He buy them. I mean, this, this was all, this, this was like every day. You talking about four or five dudes that were just getting money. None of us drunk, you know what I'm saying? None of us smoke. So we really wasn't a dude from the far end. Wouldn't know what we were doing because we really wasn't busting bottles like that because we ain't really drink. But Ray still had just buy a whole rack of Don Perignon bottles just because the bras like it, you know what I'm saying? They hang around and drink it or whatever, but he might fuck up four or five, like ten thousand dollars just on it and nobody don't even take a drink. Every day for like two years, I seen him bring out like $20,000, $20,000 a day and never take no money in the house. I mean, he give it away or spend it at the end of the day. I seen him on New Year's, get like $100,000 at once and throw it up and had niggas that's getting real money on the ground trying to get it, you know what I'm saying? I mean, we hung out in the Houston's and the rest of it, I mean, that's, that's what we stayed at. Georgetown every day. Father seen them go up Georgetown, they closed the store. You know what I'm saying? The Linda Boutique, you know what I'm saying? They been selling that Versace shit real strong. He might spend 30, 40,000 in there. I don't see what he, I mean, I don't say we might be in, we might come there deep out of even Houston. They might have a whole I-class chef, chef for the glass. They be like four or five in the park. Here by all of them, this might fuck up 20,000 in glasses, just passing them out, you know what I'm saying? So I don't say them do it on a level where it's unbelievable. Saying tips at restaurants and everything, it was unreal with him. It was down to chapter three, and the dude Alpo pulled up. I didn't really know him, but I knew who he was. And me and Ray, and I said, I said, Ray, he got more money than you. He was like, Who? I said, That, 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 that dude Alpo. Ray was like, Hell no. Nah. And they can't touch my money. He said, He know he can't touch my money. And they, Alpo came over and spoke to him and, and was like, He showed Ray much love. I said, Yeah, Ray got money. Zanville's patience for being a simple bagger quickly ran short. In her side operation, Zanville began to reap a large profit and was therefore no longer satisfied with having such a small position in the Edmund organization. So to change her status, Zanville went to Rayford himself and asked for a new job. Rayford quickly saw Zanville as a face that he could exploit for the benefit of his organization. Being a middle-aged white female in America, Rayful knew that Zanville would easily be able to travel throughout the country without drawing any suspicion from the authorities. So Rayful promoted Zanville to the position of a carrier, allowing Zanville to transport cash between LA and DC. Although Rayful was particular as to who he chose to handle his money, he felt that he had developed a strong enough relationship with Zanville to trust her with his millions. Meanwhile, Butler, knowing that Royal was eager to start his own drug empire, Outside of the Edmund organization, he sought out additional distributors that would allow him to purchase small quantities of Colombian cocaine for Royal. Butler knew that he could not use his key Colombian contacts to purchase the additional cocaine, since by this time, Rayful had established such a strong relationship with the Colombians that the additional purchases would immediately appear suspicious. Ray trusted Royal with his life. And what you see, they cost him for trusting him with his life. You know what I'm saying? So whatever he did, he, he trusted he was going to play him fair because, like I say, that was his, his best friend, quote-unquote. His friend, he felt like that wasn't strictly related, that didn't have no alternative motive for fucking him. The Edmund organization was making more money than they knew what to do with. Zanville and other carriers made weekly trips to L.A., each time traveling with several million dollars. 
Although initially Zanville was one of only a few trusted carriers, Rayful's assistance was soon needed to help her carry the large quantities of cash. The carrier's frequent trips to L.A., however, soon began to draw the attention of the authorities, who started to investigate and monitor the carriers. James Mathis was one of their runners, one of their mules that carried, carried money. As being an undercover agent, it got to the point where they trusted me, and I could go in the house and buy, buy drugs, and I didn't have to no longer stand out front and buy it. Um, in one instance, I went into the house of James Mathis and Ray Zanville, which is another one of the mules that transported money and drugs, were packing $3 million into a suitcase to send it to California. Now, when I, whenever I go to the house or whenever I go talk to them on the phone, I have to make a report. Once I saw that, I went back to the field office and made a report, which DEA called out to California and told them they had a shipment coming out there for $3 million. They took that $3 million off. They locked James Mathis up. Government prosecutors expect James Mathis of California to testify that he was a courier between the East and West Coasts carrying cocaine and cash for Rayful Edmond and his alleged L.A. associate, Melvin Butler. And like a week later, Rayful sent three more million dollars out there. So he had a lot of money. Money was no issue with him. Greed existed in all arms of the Edmond organization. Prompted by the greed of Royal Brooks, Melvin Butler actively sought out new sources to purchase small quantities of cocaine for Royal. This eventually led him to entertain offers from unknown and unfamiliar sources. As luck would have it, treading on thin water, Butler soon stepped onto a landmine, causing his cover to blow. On May 5th, 1988, Royal and Butler were both arrested after attempting to purchase 200 kilos of cocaine from an undercover DEA agent at the Proud Restaurant in L.A. Sergeant Oliver Horetsky of the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department described an undercover sting operation that caught co-defendant Melvin Butler and key witness Royal Brooks on May 5th, 1988. He said that Brooks and Butler were with three other men who were to pick up more than 200 kilograms of cocaine in exchange for more than a million dollars. After Royal Brooks was arrested, I, I can remember that Ray was, you know, he was real distorted about it. He was real hurt, you know what I'm saying? Because, like I said, that was his man, you know what I'm saying? They had a close relationship. They say he got locked up, you know what I'm saying, on the other side of the country, you know, trying to, do, you know, make a move, you know what I'm saying? But, you know, I wasn't tight to really ask a lot of questions if he ain't really volunteered information to me, you know what I'm saying? But I just know that he was real, you know what I'm saying, upset about that, you know, the dude was locked up because he didn't feel like he was made for you know what I'm saying, penitentiary or no jail situation like that. On the time when the Royal got arrested out in California, this is one of the very rare times that I did see Ray upset. And uh, he ain't really talk, well, he ain't talk about it to me that much. He was just saying, I just heard him talking to a few people saying that the Royal was locked up, locked up, locked up, locked up, locked up, locked up. In addition to having to worry about the authorities, Rayful soon became wrapped up in a brutal drug war between members of his own organization and local D.C. area crews.
troubles have just begun. Prosecutors say his ring committed more than 30 of Washington's 400 murders this year. They'll be tried for three of them in the coming months. A lot of my friends from my neighborhood lost their lives because I brought drugs in the community. Prosecutors say his ring committed more than 30 of Washington's 400 murders this year. They'll be tried for three of them in the coming months. A lot of my friends from my neighborhood lost their lives because I brought drugs in the community. Yeah, I feel bad about the name, but back then, you know, I was I was just thinking about the power. One of the cases that we had subpoena Rachel down on uh, was an investigation that we were doing in regards to the Masonic Temple, in which one of his members of the organization who lived right around the corner on 4th Street was involved. Um, and we usually knew when the person was a member or very close to Rayful because if he would come down to the grand jury, he would come down with Rayful's attorney, Art Reynolds. Um, and we knew if Art Reynolds showed up down there, then it was usually paid for by Rayful, or Rayful had something to do with him handling the case. Uh, it's appeared to me at some times as though, um, the drug trafficking took on a life of its own and he was uh, pulled along with it to a certain extent instead of being a person who was really in control of everything that uh, that he was involved in. Rayful basically told us that he knew about a lot of the murders and he knew some of the people that got killed uh, but that Rayful did not have any control over what a lot of the people were doing and who they were shooting and who got killed and he really didn't have anything personally to do with any of the murders. He just really had no control of, of, of nothing, especially when the crack hit and, and then with all the murders piling up and everybody throwing his name out there, he just, he tried to distance himself from it, but by then it was too late. He, he couldn't do it. And a lot of things was going down. The people was affiliated with him and the people knew they was with him. Well, he had no control. I know when we were looking at some cases that um, me and Rayful, we did talk about a number of cases. There were a couple cases where we were looking at a suspect and he made sure that we were able to talk to the suspect. And in fact, in one of the cases, uh, he had the guy come forward and said, look, the guy's gonna tell you what happened and you know, go from there. And the guy confessed to the shooting and we knew he had done it. But, you know, I don't know if, if that was to take the heat off him and his organization, but he'd come up with the story, well, I don't have all this control. I can't do this, I can't do this. Cause you can't control it by attitude. And he, a lot of stuff went, went down, he, he wouldn't even know about. And, and, he, and he'd be like, man, I ain't tell nobody to do nothing for me. Nobody do nothing, nobody do nothing for me. Anybody you want, you want to be up under somebody so bad, you'll do anything. Hurt somebody, or try to 
I need somebody to impress him. Impress me, you always remember. Impress me, try to get some money. That's how you impress me. You know, that's, how, that's his mentality, you know what I'm saying? Don't go ahead and try to hurt nobody, doing all the stupid stuff, drawing attention to me. And that's what the devil wants downfalls, 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 downfalls. The increase in crime drew an immense amount of unwanted negative attention from both the media and local and federal police. Tragic stories of the deaths of innocent bystanders and young gang members were reported on a daily basis. To end the rivalry, Rayful met with members of the Tadinus organization at a local high school near the Howard University campus. The two groups were forced to come to a truce. The unwanted attention from the police threatened both the organization's business and its members. As a member of the Edmund organization, however, Zanville fell under the watchful eye of the federal authorities. After attempting to sell cocaine to an undercover DEA agent, Zanville was arrested on December 19, 1988, in the underground parking lot of Phillips Restaurant on the Southwest Waterfront. She was arrested at a restaurant in Southwest Washington, D.C. after distributing a quantity of cocaine to an undercover uh, federal agent. She obtained the cocaine from Rayful, but this was her own distribution activity. Zanville testified when she was busted last December by the FBI, Rayful Edmund was not the first person agents asked her about. His name was the second one that came up, she said. The prosecutors and judge have refused to let the identity of the first name be revealed. In his cross-examination today, attorney Leonard Long contrasted for the jury the difference in circumstances for Zanville and the defendants. Long saying while Zanville admits selling at least seven and a half kilos of cocaine, she still has seven mink coats, currently owns or leases a Mercedes, a Porsche, and a Subaru, still has her house, and the government has given her $12,000 in relocation expenses. Zanville indicated, however, her possessions did not make her happy. Danville has admitted to her role in a cocaine conspiracy and is now in protective custody. With Rafel being unaware of Zanville's arrest, and in exchange for her freedom, Zanville agreed to become an informant for the federal authorities that were investigating the Edmund organization. Well, a number of associates of Rafel have been arrested and apprehended, and uh, during interviews they were pointing fingers at Rafel, and some of them had gone before the authorities. The prosecution contends Pig Latin was used during telephone conversations to disguise alleged drug activity. now under heavy surveillance, the arrest of carriers, lieutenants, and street dealers became commonplace. The arrest led to new information, which led to police search warrants. The scene was too hot for Rayful, as he was forced to cut off more and more associates, and he decided to lay low. The food people used to be where they talk about the, the people coming, and he was like, yeah, we're going to jail, playing the ball. I said, man, you play, you know how you play like this, man? 
So ain't nothing, you know, ain't nothing we can do. You know, they, they come and say, I ain't never did nothing. I ain't never sold nothing. Ain't nobody gonna say they got nothing for me. I says, I used to talk. But Ray will always just be always just saying a little shit like, bro, like you say, for far dudes getting money, like whatever status they money was on, he would play make jokes like, you won't make it to the feds, you know what I'm saying? They won't come and get you. You will do your time over the jail. You know what I'm saying? When they come and get me, it's gonna be bigger than life. And he always said, man, I'm a fed nigga anyway. If I go to jail, I'm going straight to the feds. I ain't going to pay attention to I ain't no Lord nigga. That's how I used to say. I ain't no Lord nigga. Uh, we fed niggas. But it was always like a joke. Rafa on many occasions said that if the police don't catch me with drugs in my hand, then they will never have a case against me. He had no understanding of conspiracy laws. He had no understanding of the government's methods of investigation, methods of prosecution. When the reality ever came, like in the late part of 88, beginning part of 89, when it came close to the reality, I'm saying, I think it kind of hit him, but with those kind of, he got more quiet and, you know, more, he wasn't as gleeful as he was once or, you know, most playful. You know what I'm saying? He was more serious because the reality was they was in his business, you know what I'm saying? And the funny thing about it, we all thought it was just his business they was in. For Edmund, things were tense. By arresting low and intermediate level members of the Edmund organization, the FBI was able to accumulate a substantial amount of incriminating information on the organization and its members. With this information, the FBI gained the authority to tap the home phones of Rafel's grandmother and several of his closest associates. After being arrested, Zanville agreed to cooperate with the FBI to help bring down Edmund. Zanville began to wear a wire and agreed to record her phone conversations. After she was arrested, Ray Zanville quickly decided to be a cooperating source for the government. She acted as an informant. She wore a wire. She made uh, consensually recorded telephone calls to various people, and she acquired evidence for the government. Raymond was on this trail because there were people talking. Like they said, the streets be talking. You know what I'm saying? Everybody's like, like everybody that, that everybody that was a policeman, not a policeman at heart. You know what I'm saying? Everybody that's, that's selling drugs out of hustling hard. At, at one instance, I went into the house and I saw two two white guys. And I thought to myself, like, damn, you got white people on the payroll too, but they look like those ordinary guys. Um, like I said, I knew he had Zanville, but these two guys I didn't know. And part of my other job was going to identify people and, you know, come back and report who was in the house and all that. And one of them happened to be a captain, and one was a lieutenant. I guess they would tell them when the jump outs were in the, in, in the area. And not just them, other police officers would do it too. Rafe showed up twice, you know, when I scheduled an appointment with Rafe uh, uh, to talk some police business and discuss a case. He showed up twice uh, in a limousine with his limo driver, a stretch limo, and got out and had some of his buddies on the corner carry the groceries into his mom's house. And then him and I talked and took care of what we needed to. More recently, 5D has become controversial following today's Washington Post article that reported the 5th District Station is the focus of much speculation about possible information leaks to the Rafael Edmund organization. A lot of people brought him a lot of information, you know what I'm saying? Indirectly and directly, you know what I'm saying? Lawyers, you know what I'm saying? People catching cases that was in courts that's talking to the police investigating them. It was coming from all ends, so it was coming from so many directions. It, was, it had to be the truth, you know what I'm saying? It's, it's one thing when you hear from a 
from a girl or hear from somebody and they say such and such this or such and such that and you don't hear no more about it. Then you hear it from five or six different personalities and different walks of life and you know there gotta be some truth to it, you know what I'm saying? So and this thing, you know, he started and eventually they started making it known. They started making it known they was falling so he could actually see it. Our group was looking for Ray for Eddie. And we couldn't find him for like a whole month. And all of a sudden, this police officer calls him and he just shows up. You know, so they can talk to him. And this was kind of, you know, this strike, you know, it's, it's not unheard of because I know he paid a lot of police to do a lot of stuff. Um, I've seen police get Rolex watches, $250,000. I mean, I've, I've seen a lot of stuff dealing with him and just how much power he had. ATF contacted me, they had lost a tail on Rayford. They were tailing him and they lost him. They didn't know where he was. Um, I happened to have, at the time, Rayford's home number, his cell number, his pager number. I gave him a call to him. I wanted to meet him for lunch. And uh, we met at a fast food restaurant. We were supposed to meet at one place, but three minutes before we were supposed to meet at that place, he changed the meeting location a block away. It kind of threw ATF off. Um, but they were able to pick the tail up, but they only kept the tail for another hour or so before he lost them again. He had a couple of police officers that gave him good information that allowed him to stay two steps ahead of, of, of the DEA, the FBI, and, and MPD. But what he didn't figure was people in his own organization would have the DEA and the FBI catch up with him by snitching him. That's that was basically his downfall. With Rayful coming to the realization that the feds were close, he and a few of his close associates began to sell off some of their assets to avoid having them seized by the authorities. By distancing himself from a few of his associates, Rayful was able to frustrate the efforts of the federal investigators. The feds grew frustrated as their investigation slowed to a standstill. Although Rayful's name came up in many conversations, there was no concrete evidence directly linking Rayful to the cocaine business. Desperate, the federal authorities turned to Zanville for assistance in getting the final pieces of evidence. The authorities instructed Zanville to begin questioning family members and associates about how Rayful first got started in the business. Such a conversation would directly implicate Rayful's involvement in the drug business, leaving no doubt as to whether or not he was the man in charge. The FBI it was following me so much. One night we, we was out. I think we was on our way home. I think he had a little popping over Maryland somewhere. We was on our way home. It was about like four o'clock in the morning. We was riding in the bins, and uh, they pulled us over. And uh, they got. They was talking to him like a gentleman. He got out the car. I think he had some money in the car. If I'm, if I'm not mistaken, uh, I think he had like four or five thousand dollars. They took the money. And I was like, man, you don't let him take the money, man. You ain't, you know, by me not you know, really going to go up. He's like, man, you don't let him take the money. He's like, they can have it. And, you know, I don't know what I don't know what it was behind, but he was like, you know, ain't nothing they can have. Yeah, he knew that, you know, that they was on to him hard because when he come out of restaurants or come out of clubs, you'll see the fans taking a picture. Or when you go to a shop in, in a store that you was loyal to, when you come back the next time, they might say, look, man, the people are asking what you spent. 
you know what I'm saying, you know, questions about you. So he knew it was a reality. Like in 89, when this, the heat started coming down on him, we knew because he used to tell us, point out cars that that's a police following him. And you know what I'm saying, he was always, he used to tell us he gonna, he gonna leave to go to Mexico. Y'all, I want y'all to go with me and things like that, you know, but he didn't really think it was that serious. So I don't think that's why he left. He wanted to go to the uh, University of New Mexico you know what I'm saying, pay his way to school, play basketball, and just run away from the whole situation. That type of criminal enterprise that Rafael was involved in, and you have the power and the connections that Rafael has, it, be, it becomes very difficult, I believe, to separate yourself from that enterprise and try to go into something else. But I think at that time, it was just so far, they were so far to our business that they probably wouldn't even allow them to do that. They would have probably came and got them, you know what I'm saying? So, we talked about a lot of times, during those times, you know what I'm saying? He was just, he was, you know, I mean, afraid of the unexpected, you know what I'm saying? Not really afraid that he'd get locked up, but just not knowing. On March 4th, 1989, the federal investigators finally got what they needed. The evidence they uncovered was stronger than anything they could have hoped for. It was a conversation between Zanville and Rachel's mother. On the evening of March 3rd, 1989, Zanville met with Rafael's mother for dinner at Pier 7 Restaurant on the Southwest Waterfront. During the meal, Zanville, who was wearing a wire, manipulated Rafael's mother into talking about Rafael's beginning in the drug game. And there were tapes of wiretaps and hidden microphones in which the defendants allegedly told on themselves. In one, Edmund's own mother was recorded by Zanville talking about young Rafael's start in the drug business and the path that led to his downfall. 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 She was a mom to me, but also she was a personal friend to me. So when things, you know, selling drugs, like I told you before, so many things go wrong. People get killed. People lose their jobs, people get strung out, and whenever things go wrong or things don't go right in my life, she was my friend. I go talk to her and tell her about all these things, about what's going on with me, and she knew about all that, and she ended up telling all the things that I told her to an informant on a wiretap. You had with his mom, it fucked him up, you know what I'm saying? Because due to the fact that you, you got a, a woman that he trusted, he put a lot of trust in, you know what I'm saying? Talking to his mom, someone he probably, his ultimate probably far as his love go, and to hear the thing that she was, you know, they was talking about, it kind of hurt him, you know what I'm saying? And I, you know, I remember distinctly him saying we was locked up, that his mother really was blowing a lot of smoke and making things look bigger than they were because she probably was, you know, just overstruck about the whole situation going over, you know, about how he was getting money and doing a lot of things, so he was kind of, upset about that because he was like a lot of things was fabricated and blown up but it sounds so true because it's coming from his mom during the last month when i, I think this is a time he knew they was coming but didn't know what day or or, 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 or what week they were coming he, he, he got he was kind of getting I, I think he was just blowing money you know what i'm saying it was like you know like, i know they're coming but I don't know when, so I'm going to take this one. Murphy brought an ex-college basketball player, Clarence Green, to testify to Edmund's character. Green said Edmund was not a dope dealer, but was a gambler who won as much as $45,000 a night. He is my friend. He's a friend of mine. Mostly every day, every night, always gamble all the time. That was the main thing I was on every day and every night. And you can make enough money gambling to yeah. buy... Mm -hmm. On some nights, you know, he might win forty to fifty thousand dollars gambling. I mean, but the money he was he was gambling. I mean, what if he'd have been winning twenty or thirty thousand? But he didn't kill him. 
I mean, he was. I watched him make bets, stupid bets. He was just, you know, it was just, it was just like a joke. But you know, I, 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 I can see him. You know, he was concerned because he didn't want to go home no more at night. It's like the heat was like stepping up more. Okay, it was just like it was coming towards an abundance that man, the people coming to get y'all any day. They checking y'all name. They doing this. They doing that. But like I said that time, we always just assumed that it was really raided. They was targeting. You know, there were years and years and years that they were trying to get him at all levels, and uh, it wasn't until um, finally a number of people in his inner circle finally just gave it up. On April 15, 1989, with the final missing piece in place, the FBI was able to obtain a warrant for the arrest of Rafael Edmund and 29 of his closest associates in a sweep that lasted over the course of two days. The FBI finally got who they wanted. The king of cocaine. Now uh, get home. I need to talk to you. It's emergency. Well, what's the world? Yes. Okay. All of us. Fifteenth and sixteenth, when the FBI, the DEA, and the DC police swept out and swept in Rafael Edmund III and a couple dozen of his family members, friends, and associates. The government alerted the uh, media before Rafael and the other members of uh, the alleged conspiracy were arrested, and they were filmed being taken into custody, and they were filmed uh, being transported uh, to court. It was just a big case in that they had spent years and years and years of investigation on and every time Rafael had slipped through uh, and they were having difficulties so when they were able to get the indictments down and get everything sealed I think they wanted to uh, generate as much publicity as they can. So when they pulled me up I'm saying channel 9 man, five so I'm saying to myself tonight I get locked up some big shit happening. You know what I'm saying? But I ain't never really even fathomed that I was the big shit. You know what I'm saying? But the, the police ran up to me and said, which one is that? They said, that's Kirk Bones. They said, how old is he? So I said, I'm 18. And they was like, he old enough. But I don't even know. I would say the juvenile number. They wouldn't have put me on camera. I, you know, that's how naive I was to the law. So when they said he old enough, they bum rushed me, flashed me up, you know, put me all across the TV, all over the country. The next thing you know, what time I woke up for court, Bull, the, the marshals, everybody was like, you're a movie star, you're all over TV, you, 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 you're a big movie star. So I was like, this shit must be big. So 
That's how that happened. The government from the very beginning made the uh, media coverage so intense. This is probably the single most significant law enforcement operation directed at a cocaine trafficking organization here in the District of Columbia uh, that we have seen for a long time. That it was absolutely impossible for Rafer or any of the other members of the alleged conspiracy to receive fair trials. U.S. Attorney Jay Stevens acknowledges prosecutors want to make an example of Edmund. We're sending a message to the young people of this community that uh, people like uh, those individuals under indictment here uh, are not the kind of role models that you should have because these are the kind of people that will end up uh, spending the rest of their life in prison. I was named by the government as an unindicted co-conspirator, and for that reason, I was not able to represent Rafael or any of the other co-defendants during the large conspiracy trial. And we knew if Art Reynolds showed up down there, then it was usually paid for by uh, Rafael, or Rafael had something to do with him handling the case. So, uh, and we had a lot of dealings with Art. The government um, felt that because I had represented so many people who ended up being charged in the conspiracy that I must have had a closer relationship with them than just that of an attorney-client. The trial was just, a, it was a circus, you know what I'm saying, it was for real. It was, it was all premeditated on, on their part, for real. They should have been charged with premeditation. The trial alone was almost like a circus, I mean. You talking about bulletproof glass, people coming up the back escalator. I, even one time when I, when, I, when I first went to testify, they had to shoot around me to walk me through the hall so nobody would see me until I got on the stand. The trial has gotten off to a very slow start, but picked up some speed today with eight witnesses on and off the stand, although there have been no major revelations so far. In my heart, it was just like a, it was a no-win situation, you know what I'm saying? It was just, it was, it was real ugly, and then the clamor that they put in the courtroom, they said, you know, the, uh, the jurors uh, kept them unknown, you know what I'm saying? And the bulletproof glass, then the helicopters taking you back and forth to court. The jury was seated behind a bullet proof glass screen. They used an anonymous jury panel. And for the first time in Washington District Court history, the case will be decided by what's being called an anonymous jury. So that no one would be able to know the names and addresses of the jurors. The jury will hear the trial under unprecedented security, protected by bulletproof glass and addressed by assigned numbers instead of their names. Edmund was so powerful and so dangerous the jury in his trial had to sit behind bulletproof glass, their identities hidden from the public for their own safety. New development tonight in the trial of alleged cocaine kingpin Rafael Edmund, the judge is barring the public from the trial starting next week to help protect the jury. They had metal detectors that you had to go through in order to enter the courtroom for any spectators or uh, uh, witnesses or anyone else. The news media would show on a daily basis Rayful and one or more of his co-defendants being transported to court by helicopter from the Quantico Marine base where they were being housed. As though he really was a uh, danger to national security rather than just a uh, young individual who was selling drugs and was uh, being tried for that. You know what I'm saying? They just they, they made it seem like that it was a bunch of animals. Basically, they done got from Africa and brought them over into you know the United States. As a result, there was no way that Rafael could get a fair trial. There was no way that any of the other defendants could get a fair trial in that case.
with all of the um, all of the media. A firebomb was thrown into the home of the witness's mother. In fact, the house of the family of one witness was firebombed after her testimony. Another key witness has refused to testify. Another scheduled witness was shot dead. Still another refused to testify after she was shot and injured. Officials have formed a task force for witness protection, including the city's police chief, the DEA, FBI, and federal marshals. Firebombing of the witness's uh, relative's home last weekend, that there is some concern that Edmund is receiving a lot of visitors, or had been receiving a lot of visitors at the D.C. jail, and perhaps even might be giving directives from jail. Another thing that tells me when they were saying in, in trial how he was having, having, having people killed, that was, I knew that for, I knew that for, that for a fact that wasn't him. It was a difference from basketball to being in the streets. But even when we played ball and got into confrontations, he was always the mediator. And that ain't what we here for, man, this and that. And I don't heard him say in the streets when guys was, was, was trying to take advantage of him. Man, I ain't worried about that, man. They can have that little bit of money. That money ain't gonna hurt me. I ain't thinking about that shit. Man, I'm going. So I, I knew for a fact, you know, they, they just, you know, they, they really trying to bring him down. And with uh, um, all of the tools that the government used to make it clear that this was a dangerous individual and that these were dangerous people who had to be convicted and taken off the street. That was the first time that that bulletproof glass uh, courtroom had been used. Prosecution relied heavily on testimony from former alleged Edmund confidants, including Alter Ray Zanville, Royal Brooks, and James Big Boy Mathis. When, when the trial was going on, we, we, we better get Shannon to do a lot of talk. We was, in the, we was over D.C. jail. They ended up moving him when the trial went on to um, Quantico. You know what I'm saying? The Marine Bugs, you know, just to make the heightness of it even more bigger than, you know, that they was a danger to even the jail. In addition, officials are apparently getting concerned about what kind of power Rayful Edmund might be wielding from jail because as of Sunday, Rayful Edmund was moved out of the D.C. jail. Authorities say they had to move Edmund out of the local jail and into a more secure facility because he was getting special VIP treatment from the guards. He always said, man, I'm a fed nigga anyway. If I go to jail, I'm going straight to the fed. I ain't going to penitentiary no more. I ain't no lord nigga. I'm going to eat steak. You know, I'm going to eat steak so y'all don't eat that lord food. One corrections department official said that some of the inmates and staffers here at the D.C. jail are treating Rafael Edmund like a godfather. He says on one occasion, someone managed to smuggle a pizza into Edmund's cell. And they don't make pizza here at the D.C. jail. You know what I'm saying? So we didn't really get a chance to talk much as we did when he was still over the jail. When he was over the jail, we talked about it every day because he knew that Roy and Ray Zanville was, you know, going against him. You know what I'm saying? So... He was real hurt, you know what I'm saying, especially about Roy, and you know, because like I say, he felt like that was like a brother to him, and it really, really hurt him, but like he had, you know, he had to de deal with the hand the car they even dealt. Before I got on the stand, all the evidence that the, the prosecution had, um, had presented to the jury, grateful, and they were back there high-fiving and laughing, and said, man, they, ain't, they don't have nothing on us. I was fortunate to have a good attorney, you know, Mr. Thomas Abernathy, He's the, he, was the, he used to reiterate that to me every day he come to see me. That, you know what I'm saying? Y'all gonna get punished. Y'all ain't here laughing. Y'all ain't here playing. Y'all is through, man. They been talking about this in the courtroom for two years before they had me got y'all, man. Say, man, y'all not gonna win this case. So when I got up on the stand, because I had an inside look at, at how he did stuff and how he moved and the clubs he went to and the, 
places where he laundered money, like this store in Georgetown. They look like they shrunk like into little ants. When I got up on them, you could just see all the air come out of them. Because they knew, they knew that they sold me drugs. Today's testimony was the most damaging so far because it directly and personally ties Rachel Edmund III to big drug sales. This was the day Edmund's attorney, William Murphy, had been waiting for. The day to try to discredit the government's star witness, Alta Ray Zanville, in cross-examination. The 48-year-old Zanville has admitted her role in the conspiracy and is currently in protective custody. I think he found out real early in the game that, that she was a star witness against us. You know what I'm saying? Matter of fact, he was found out so the indictment was that, you know, that she was a star witness against him and all that. You know what I'm saying? But like you say, he was really no further about it because only he know what he was doing with her. You know what I'm saying? So we really couldn't feel this pain on that. And he didn't elaborate what she had him fucked up that. Feeling like the majority of the case, we was like doing our own thing. Like like the, the, the police and the, and the court system made it like it was one big crew. Assistant U.S. Attorney Barry Tapp said it was a family ring and the only way to join was through blood, marriage, or close friendship. Prosecutors had charged that Edmund and members of his family controlled a whole system of cocaine traffickers with 125 or more people employed as enforcers, lieutenants who supplied and protected couriers and street dealers, and so-called mules who shuttled vast amounts of money to Los Angeles to buy and bring back cocaine. But it really wasn't no one big crew, you know what I'm saying? A lot of those dudes on the case, we might have said five or six things to each other on the streets, you know what I'm saying? So they built it to make it like it was a big organization that was ran corporately styled and all that, but it was basically like contractors, for real, people freelancing, doing their own thing, you know what I'm saying? So the way they, so a lot of people really wasn't talking about what they got on them, what they think they got, because there was really no trust factor even amongst us because we didn't have no bond with each other. Rachel Edmund arrived for the verdict under heavy security, shackled and transported by helicopter from a nearby military base. One of the largest and longest and surely most unusual drug cases in the history of the District of Columbia has come to an end with a rousing victory for the government. Rachel Edmund III and ten co-defendants had stood silently in the courtroom as the verdicts were read. The 25-year-old Edmund closed his eyes momentarily and looked at the floor. Rachel Edmund III has been found guilty of engaging in a continuing criminal enterprise, conspiracy to violate narcotics laws, one count of interstate travel in aid of racketeering, one count of employing a minor for illegal purposes, and four counts of using telephone facilities for illegal purposes. All ten other co-defendants were found guilty as well, found guilty of conspiracy, including his brother, his sister, his cousin, his aunt, two brothers-in-law, and assorted friends. They were found guilty of conspiracy to violate drug laws. After the trial and everything, when everybody was convicted going on during their time, you can you can see you can see by the rate of crowd going up the effect that he had on the street because he was on the street. So many dudes was getting money, it was more harmony. You know what I'm saying? But a lot of people was trying to live the same way they was living. They couldn't live that way. So you know they had they did whatever tax they did to survive. You know what I'm saying? Whether that be kidnapping, robbing, uh, stalking, or whatever. But that's one of the reasons that it, DC really got the chain like that. The verdict in this case, I think, represents a victory for all the people of the District of Columbia. Those who live here, who work here, and who visit here. Because of the bulletproof glass, because of the anonymous jury system where there would be no accountability on the part of the jurors, because of the number
number of marshals who were ringing the well of the courtroom, all of that uh, created a climate that uh, he felt was going to make it difficult for him to get a fair trial. I used to always think they got to catch you with shit. A guy had you serving somebody or getting this with somebody. I ain't never think he'd go like that. I didn't think they was going to hold him. I thought it was going to be like one or two days, he'd be out on bond. We never came back out. Let me say to the young people of this community who look to the leader of this organization as their role model for the flat, flashy, fast life, well, they will now see him through bars for the rest of his life. And we kept thinking back to something we saw a few weeks ago, earlier this month when Edmund was taken out of the courtroom to jail for the last time. He walked confidently toward the police helicopter, turned and mouthed these words. Look closely. Rayful Edmund said, I'll be back. This drug lord won't be let out of prison early. That's the decision from a federal judge in the case of Melvin Butler and James Jones. They were associates of D.C. drug lord Rayful Edmund III in the 1980s. The judge refused to cut two years from each man's projected 28-and-a-half-year sentence. In issuing the decision, the judge said Edmonds' organization enabled drug addiction on an unprecedented and, quote, largely unimaginable scale. There were fireworks right from the start of last night's second year. Royce C. Lambert, he denied a request by the prosecutor for early release of two top associates of Rayful Edmund the third, the notorious drug kingpin in Washington, D.C. I think they made a movie about him or a film about him. One of the most notorious gang leaders around. The Washington Post described Judge Lambert's astonishment when the United States attorney did not object to the drug felon's request for early release. Quote, the judge rebuked the office of acting United States Attorney Vincent Cohen, Jr. of the district, saying prosecutors did not give due weight to the criminal history of Butler, 52, the Los Angeles-based cocaine broker and partner of D.C. drug lord Rafael Edmund III and Jones, 58, one of the top, the four top armed enforcers of Edmund's violent trafficking network. The imported as much as 1,700 pounds of Colombian cocaine a month. That's almost a ton a month. That's the largest amount I've ever seen. I thought the biggest case I'd ever seen was 600 pounds flown in on about 20 plane loads uh, every several months. This is 1,700 pounds a month. Edmonds' organization enabled drug addiction on a scale that until then, quote, was unprecedented and largely unimaginable in Washington, Lambert wrote, and that the harm the defendants caused is immeasurable and in many cases irreversible, close quote, the judge said. To put it bluntly, the court is surprised and disappointed by the United States Attorney's decision not to impose the present, not to oppose the, the present motion, Lambert said. Quote, the court struggles to understand how the government could condone the release of Butler and Jones, each convicted of high-level, sophisticated, and violent drug trafficking offenses, close quote. So that's a federal judge doing their duty. 
I'm not sure where Ms. Zenis would be on this. Contrast that with many courts across the country that are currently rubber stamping motions for early release for federal drug trafficking felons under the Sentencing Commission's reductions to the sentencing guidelines that have already occurred and that are impacting the prison population significantly, as we will see. According to an October 20th... 20- 1980s Rafel 